Hello, and welcome to this episode of TASME Time, Talks in Medical Education. My name is Rob Cullum, and I'm a GP trainee based in Lincolnshire. For this very special episode of the podcast, we recorded a live panel discussion at this year's ASME ASM in Birmingham. But before we get on to that main discussion, um, I was joined by uh, both Sean, who's the outgoing chair of TASME, and Cleone, who's the incoming chair of TASME, um, and we had a bit of a brief chat um, discussing our reflections of, of the first two days of the ASME ASM. Um, so it's great to have a bit of a quick chat with you both about things. Um, I mean, what a fantastic conference it, it's been so far. Yeah, I think it's been um, I think it's been the best year yet. It's been absolutely incredible. Um, it's been a really lovely venue to be in Birmingham this year um, and kind of having the opportunity to see lots of old faces, familiar faces and um, welcome lots of new members as well. There's lots of kind of uh, great networking and things going on. I thought the food was great, which is unusual to say about uh, some conferences. And uh, But I, honestly, the environment, the venue, and it was great that they could involve also the local Birmingham and Aston University medical students as volunteers. And I think just generally the vibes was fantastic. I, I would agree. I think the volunteers from both universities were actually fantastic, um, have been fantastic throughout the last two days. Um, really helpful. And it's really nice that they then get the opportunity to take part in things as well. And certainly... Um, in a workshop that I ran yesterday um, on misogyny and sexism, I had we had one of the students from Aston there um, who was just absolutely fantastic. Some really really helpful insights into the discussions, and so I think for them it was a really great opportunity to both obviously do something to help, but then also to actually take away the learning. And I think that's that's really great. Yeah, I think one of the things that I really enjoyed was having the opportunity to um, be involved with some of the uh, schools kind of A-level students that were there so through the kind of ASMIM Rich program um, some of the local um, students who are interested in getting into medicine but perhaps don't necessarily have the access points were invited to kind of come along for part of the day so getting the opportunity to spend some time with them chat about their kind of aspirations in, in the career was really exciting for me um, and not something that I've done before so that was a really lovely part of it as well. I think the network has been great too. I think our, on Wednesday morning, we had our kind of introduction to the ASM workshop where we invited all the more junior attendees. Um, and actually, it was great to see people ranging from your right medical students interested in medical education. And it's a packed room all the way up to people like Bob McKinley, who's on, you know, so experienced and senior and has so much wisdom to give. And just seeing everyone in that room connect, it was fantastic. Yeah, really, really nice. I think um, one of my highlights, I have to say, um, has been the uh, TASME Thai Prize, so the Teaching Innovation and Excellence Prize, which is kind of every year it's a highlight because it's an award that TASME gets to kind of give out. But this year, particularly, it felt like there was uh, some absolutely amazing standards out there and the work that people are doing is just incredible. Um, so we're really pleased to give uh, Neil Thakra a um, prize this year and um, kind of tweeted about it so you can uh, read about his what work that he's been doing. One of the hardest decisions we've had to make in recent uh, memory, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> I did not envy the judges, you judges <laughs> for doing that. So well done. Amazing. Um, Right, I think without further ado, I need to run off and get ready uh, to host this panel discussion. Um, but I'll tr catch up with you both um, at the end and maybe we can have a bit of a chat about what you thought of the discussion and, and what your take-home messages would be. Good luck, Rob. Sounds good, yeah. Have fun. <laughs> um, so good morning, everyone. So my name's Rob. Um, I'm one of the two hosts for the TASME Time podcast. And I'm really excited today that we've got the opportunity to be joined by three of our keynote speakers from across the conference to explore in a little bit more depth issues of intersectionality and how that ties into everything that we've already talked about and, and sort of developed our understanding of over the last couple of days. Before we start, I thought it would be nice just to get the three of you um, to introduce yourselves. So I'm going to start at the opposite end of me, if that's all right with you, Sally. Thank you. Um, so I'm Sally Curtis, and I am from Southampton. My history uh, background is in widening participation to medicine. Amazing. Thank you. Vishnu. So I'm Vishnu, and I'm from Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. I started as a biochemist, and now I'm a medical educator. 
Amazing. Thank you, Neera. Kia ora. Um, my name's Neera Jane, and I'm a senior lecturer at the University of Auckland, and my work is in disability inclusion and health professions education. Amazing. Thank you all. I thought as a starting question, really, we should start with asking, what does intersectionality mean to you? So does anyone want to kick us off? Okay, I'll start <laughs> Yeah. So for me, intersectionality means who I am. And uh, who I am is, um, is quite uh, diverse because um, I am a person of Sri Lankan Tamil heritage. So that forms the part of me that, you know, my culture, even my religion, right? I am a Malaysian. So I, I grew up in a multi-racial country where the majority of uh, people are Muslims. So I feel that I identify very well in that environment and I work very well with different communities. Uh, I am a medical educator with an international partnership program. So I, ha I feel I'm global. So for me, intersection intersectionality is who I am. Yeah. And that forms who I am as a medical educator. I really like that, and I really liked how you sort of brought together that sort of aspect of your professional self as well as your personal self and where they meet. I think that's a really nice way of thinking about this. Yeah, um, I think, you know, I could, I could similarly um, describe kind of where I sit at the intersections, but I think maybe how I'd like to answer is more about attending to the theory and why intersectionality theory matters and why I find it constantly important um, in understanding the complexities of what we see. And it's really about acknowledging complexity. So um, Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw, a, a black woman scholar, legal scholar, um, developed this idea really because in her legal work, she was noticing that human rights protections didn't quite get at the kind of nuance of marginalization that if we look just at um, kind of the categories of marginalization on their own, um, it's not enough because when those categories come together, there's a, a different experience. And if we're just looking at blackness, gender, um, class, separately, we're not getting at how even within those categories, there are further hierarchies that come together um, and they work together. So um, I think when, you know, in my work in disability inclusion, um, we can see historically the folks who have made it into medicine, for example, have been more likely to be white men with physical disability or something like that. Um, so in our work, attending to how people experience, for example, ableism differently, um, if... <laughs> We're here. Um, <laughs> people who, who occupy those, those intersections um, experience ableism differently. And so if we're just thinking about ableism without thinking about racism or sexism or um, classism, then, then we're missing and, and there are people who are going to continually be left at the bottom if we're just focusing on a single category. Thank you. And again, I think that's a really helpful, completely different perspective mm. that just helps. The, I think we often use the term intersectionality, don't we? But I don't think we always... I think a lot of people don't look back at that, the origins mm. of the term and where it came from, and I think that's really important as well to sort of have that historical context. So thank you. Sally? I, I, I completely agree with, with what's been said before, but, but I suppose another um, perspective on this for me or, or how it's important is, is understanding what other people's intersectional identities are. Mm. And we make so many assumptions from our position. I speak for myself as well, which I try very hard not to do now, but you, you, many of our intersectional identities are not apparent. In fact, I think probably the majority aren't obvious or overt. And 
we often, I, we, I see around me as well, the, the expectation of people to behave or respond or react in particular ways that um, align with th that observer's own identity. And if you don't take the time to talk to someone and find out who they are and what their identities are and how their different identities impact on them or motivate them or... Um, Yes, and so it, it's about, if you can take the time to understand some, somebody and find out what they are, things are a lot easier for everybody and people don't feel as um, sort of marginalised or overlooked or misunderstood and, and a lot of the difficulties and challenges I think my students face because people don't understand their identities and the complexity and how they relate to them in that situation. Mm. Thank you. Um, thank you all of you because I, I think we've really illuminated that point now. I think what I'd really like to do now is to open up to the room. So if anyone's got any questions for our panel around intersectional identities, it'd be really great. We've got um, a roving mic, so sort of wave your hand if you've got a question and then hopefully we can put that to the panel. Thanks, is that working? I was wondering if you had any advice on how to sensitively ask people um, so we can get an idea of this, because it's hard to bring up um, in conversation, particularly for the hidden things, um, in order to help people and understand better. I think i just just like to add, I mentioned to Rob before we started, right? Um, if you ask someone where you're from, right, actually, in Malaysia or Southeast Asia, when people ask that, no one takes offense because people genuinely want to know where you're from so that you can have that conversation about who you are, you know? And, and that's really of genuine interest. But when I read the news or things that happen in this part of the world, and I can understand why it can be something of offense, mm. right? because of the context that it is. So I think one of the things about intersectionality, it must not be a tick box. So this is where my country could do better. So any form I feel, actually they are answering some of the things that Nira mentioned about your gender, your race, whether you're able or not. But it becomes just a tick box. How that translates uh, how that data is used to understand communities and make communities work together is missing. That's the big gap. So I would say, uh, be brave and ask, be genuine, but be sensitive to the context. Mm. And if you're going to ask and discuss, do that follow-up and maybe acknowledge some of, um, uh, I, su I suppose, the ignorance, uh, I would use this, that we have. And also share your intersectionality. Yeah. I think it cannot be a one-way conversation. It needs to be a two-way conversation. So that, that actually then it becomes rich and then you get to know people. Yeah. yeah, I think I would add to that, you know, I think what you said about context is so important. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's really different to be asked where I'm from yes. in the United States versus in New Zealand. It just hits differently. Yeah. Um, and, um, and I think learning people's intersectional identities sometimes is something that has to be earned. And I think you asked that question about sensitively asking, and I think that's the trick, right? Because sometimes that's going to come out over time. Um, but in a space, like I think about spaces that I work in as an academic and teams that I'm a part of, um, that idea of reflexivity is really important. Thinking about who we are and what do we bring to this work. I do qualitative research. I think all researchers from all different paradigms should be doing this work of thinking about who are we, how does this affect how we see the world, what we can see, what can't we see, um, and how are we? how is that going to affect the work that we produce? And that doesn't mean one can't do work because of their identity, but it's about thinking critically about what does it mean for me to do this work? 
um, for us to do this work? Are there perspectives that are missing that we want to bring into our team? And I think having open, ongoing dialogue, you know, I would hope you know, this might be something clinical teams can do, but really, I think, so important for research teams thinking about the knowledge they're generating and where that's coming from and being really honest with each other. I think that also brings that space, opens a space to have difficult conversations while you're doing the work, but also for those kind of disclosures that unfold through time. If, that, if a space has been created where it's safe and um, respected and um, open that can encourage that kind of conversation. Yeah, and, and we do something with our students and within our teams that builds just on what Neera said, and um, it takes time. So I think it's quite difficult if you're doing it when you first meet someone, and, and I think in a way, being authentic, as you said, being authentic, sharing from yourself is key, but I think if you've got the time and space within teams or within the classroom, we actually take a whole three-hour session to sit down to get to know each other in a safe way. So we create an environment, we explain what we're doing, and we get people to draw their identities with each other. So it's a, it's a family therapy method. But you draw, so you share what you want to share. You don't share anything you don't want to share. You have the time and space to explain what your drawings mean. You don't have to be able to draw at all well, which I can't, it's all stick and, and no numbers, no letters, but it's just, and you just then present your identity. So some people draw flags, some people draw families, some people draw um, religious symbols, some people, you know, I would draw a glass that was half full because I'm an optimist. So I will explain what that means and why that's me. And then when I've said my bit, everyone is then invited to ask questions about it. And it's a really powerful method. Now, that takes time, but actually, if you really want to know people and you really want to work as a team, you need to take a bit of time. And, and actually, the whole act of drawing around the table, it takes you back to I don't know, your childhood or something, and you're all sat there sort of drawing away and looking at what everyone's doing. And it's a little bit of a sort of bonding exercise, but I, I think, you know, to be authentic, to share yourself, but absolutely to take time and, and to be really that respectful, safe space and have that two-way dialogue is really helpful. Thank you. And I, I think that I really like that last, that sort of really practical way of doing things, partly because I really like the idea of sitting and drawing and, and, <laughs> coming, and coming back to that childhood thing. So I think sometimes that can be, it adds to that safety almost because you go back to what, for, I suppose, for most people at least is, is relatively happy memories of those kind of activities. Have we got any other questions? I've got one over there. Oh. Hi, good morning. <laughs> Thank you so much for your fantastic talks, I'm Sean. And I've got a question which is stemming from some of the conversations around some of your keynote talks, which is how do we reduce that burden to educate, to resolve all of these issues of perhaps the students and faculties mm. from the particular intersectional identity groups themselves, perhaps? I think, I think just to carry on from what I've said, I, we actually have the reverse, we have a reverse mentoring program. So we have a series of different activities. We have a, um, we're developing a listening project and it's all about creating the opportunity for staff and students to talk and understand the other's position. Um, even coming here yesterday over lunch, we're talking with students and students are saying, you know, we don't understand this. The students are upset about this. So you have a chance to chat about it which doesn't normally happen. So I think having, creating space and, and a genuine will to learn about other, other students, uh, well, other people, other st staff and students is, is um, crucial. Yeah. So it's building that in. So you talked about reducing the burden, right? And these past few days, I think this has been also on my mind, how to reduce the burden. Because you cannot expect certain groups to always yeah. be explaining themselves. Right, explaining themselves. Uh, for example, uh, in the context, if you are belonging to a person who is a minority or you know, uh, someone who is brown or black and a patient doesn't want to interact with you, should it be the burden of that person mm. to correct the situation? Right? So it happens in, in, in every part of the world. There will be people right, who is at the bottom of the ladder. 
So this thing about allies is really important. And we cannot just think of allies as someone who is the teacher or the, or the, uh, the physician or the consultant. That allied comes from also your peers in that group to support one another. So allies and someone who recognizes their privilege and actually works and corrects the situation together, I think is much appreciated. This is coming again uh, from experiences that I have even today. On the outside, as you say, you are seen as a leader. But I've been in boardrooms, for example, where I've been just talked over because of my gender. And someone who is of a different gender or different color actually is being given deference and attention. But it's an ally there or, or someone who said, let's hear, let's do together. And I don't take offense to that because for me, I want everybody's voice to be heard. So allies can come in any form, shape or size, right? But they, you need allies so that the burden is reduced. Yeah, I think it's a, this is a really sticky area. Um, and I've been having conversations with folks about this through the, through the conference, and I think there's kind of two things that I'm thinking about. One is that adage of nothing about us without us, that um, it's, it's necessary and foundational that the work we do um, in this space is informed by, is led by um, those with lived experience but what that leadership looks like might differ. Um, because not everyone wants to be an advocate, and then what happens is often there's a smaller group of people who've put themselves out there who are then um, really burdened with labor. Um, and so I, I don't know that we've kind of worked that out yet, um, but one thing that I always recommend is to first do, do the work um, yourself. There's so many resources on the internet, um, in writing, videos, that we can, people have put, already put their stories out there, um, their concerns, and we should read that and, and educate ourselves and kind of do some of that critical consciousness raising work in circles um, where we're not asking folks to educate us and to do that labor, um, that, that, for example, white folks can um, have a, a consciousness raising group with themselves, um, reading you know, critical work, listening to things, and not saying, can, can you tell me if I've done something wrong, for example. Um, but um, I think, you know, doing some of that baseline work, then you're coming to a conversation more informed. You've, you've seen what's already out there. Um, but then we, we need folks with lived experience to be um, part of the conversation, part of the work, if they want to be. Um, and so, yeah, I guess I, it's not a clear answer that I have, and I'm not sure. I think we're all muddling through that. Um, but there's, I think it's something we really need to think about, especially as we're in spaces where folks from marginalized identities, they're marginalized. Mm -hmm. They're in smaller numbers. And so to ask them to do the work, um, to always be doing the work, is just not going to work. And I think making space for those folks to take care of themselves, to not be on every committee, all of those things, and also acknowledge the work that they're doing. I think about, sorry, I'm talking and talking, but um, academic promotion and what counts towards academic promotion, for example, and is that labor that people are doing, you know, I think of our indigenous faculty who are asked to do so much labor around language and around culture and around you know, looking at people's grant applications to make sure it's um, culturally safe practice, um, that work needs to be counted and weighted um, accordingly, recognize that that labor is happening. And I, if I can just add on, yeah. I think within the student um, arena, so 
we would only ever, you ask for volunteers, because some people are very happy to come forward and share their experiences, and some people would rather not. And, that, and you, you should never be expecting of anybody to do anything that they're not, not comfortable with. But it's setting up, as you were saying, it's setting up a system where they can come in as experts, yeah. voluntarily share what they'd like to share, and are recognized, rewarded, and valued for that. But the students, most would appreciate payment because they have yes. very limited funding. Mm -hmm. So it's so important to establish with your faculty a way of recognizing and rewarding with money and or, and or other um, factors, but creating the space where they can, but not expecting them to put all that groundwork in. Pay people, yes. Pay, recognize people's labor and pay them for that labor, especially learners. Their I think expertise. Expertise, yeah, yeah. yeah because, because that... I hear so often, you know, oh, but, you know, it's an opportunity, it's exactly. good for this well. student, they can join this project, and it's like, you're asking for their expertise, they're working for you, they're offering expert knowledge, pay them for that time and, and effort and expertise accordingly. 100% agreed. <laughs> 100%. <laughs> and it's, it's assumed that, oh, it's part of your professional development, mm. you know, mm. you learn to teach, but we are being paid, yeah. <laughs> so why not the students be paid? It's good for yeah. your CV. Yeah, <laughs> good for your CV. <laughs> and that, that's a really common thing that we hear, certainly from my experience of going through both medical school and, and postgraduate training in the UK, we use that all the time as a it's good, it's good experience for you, and it's probably perpetuates, doesn't it, problems. Yeah. It, doesn't, it doesn't help. And I think there's a lot of work going on now. I know I've seen on Twitter over the last few years where certainly in the UK universities are getting better at paying students when they do those things. But I don't think it's universal and I think there's a lot of work to do this. I'm really glad you brought that up. I just wanted to add, and perhaps I missed it because there were so many good sessions happening, but just a shout out for international students in mm. UK. You know, they, they come with parents paying, well, they have to pay at least, I think, two or three or four times the tuition fees. And people assume, again, not understanding, assume that they come from well-off families. But, you know, houses have been sold, loans have been taken, and the kind of accessibility that they have and, and challenges they have. Just, just yeah. a shout out to international students. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for that. Have we got another question from that? So sorry, I had a follow-on from what you were saying. We're just about to start. You know, the reps, student reps, I hate that. We're actually calling them consultant colleagues. Oh. And um, we've just um, gained the money in the university and the recognition for our consultant colleagues, um, student consultant colleagues, to pay for their expertise, as mm. you were saying. And um, there's certain groups that we're going to target first. There's certain committees. So our diversity and medical education committee, the students that actually give us their lived experience and the expertise, they're the first group that we're paying. The international student committee as well. So it's nice to hear that we're on the right tracks. Yeah. So, so I think there was a question at the back there. To your left. <laughs> Thank you. Hello, yes, yeah, so it's nice to meet you. My name's Hamza. Um, I suppose my question is, when we have intersecting identities, I suppose what I've found is, especially within a minority group, and definitely at medical school, I sometimes find the voice of the more privileged minorities overweighing the voice of those with more intersecting identities. And there's also like an expectation to conform then to the majority minority, if that makes sense. But I don't want to do that. I, lo I love having my intersecting identities. I love the way it gives me a unique perspective. I don't know if my question has an answer to it, but how do we navigate that space then when we have all these intersecting identities, but you're then feeling like a minority within a minority within a minority, and you don't... Yeah, I'm not quite sure how you deal with that. I can start. Um, I mean, I think... I think what you're talking about is, is so real and such a prevalent concern. I think about students who participate in my research, you know, black women, black disabled women um, in medicine, and they talked about, you know, not being able to talk about disability or have it recognized within, um, you know, a, a black student's association space. And that, you know, that's not a conversation for this space. We're talking about race now. 
And I think um, where I think the intervention should happen is actually the other folks in the group, that <laughs> uh, um, you shouldn't have to kind of push for that to be recognized. I think um, in movement spaces, we need to be thinking about intersectionality as like a core value um, because of that concern around um, we, we can't get free until we all get free, you know? And um, I think that when we don't think about that, it waters down what we're able to achieve. Um, and so I don't have a good answer for you. I mean, I think if you are someone who wants that intersectionality valued um, and you are willing to step forward and do that, um, keep doing it. You know, maybe, maybe raise intersectionality as a topic for the group to kind of ponder and discuss together. Um, but I would, also, I would say for folks out there who are in those spaces who don't, I, I mean, I think we all have intersectional identities, but, but aren't thinking about it as much. I think um, it's, maybe it's time to step back and let other people step forward um, and think about how that time is being used um, and, and, and just ask themselves how, how can we better acknowledge intersectionality in the work we do. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that's, I think you've, you've asked a really relevant but very difficult mm -hmm. question. Um, personally, I always, you use the word unique and it's something that I use with my students is that I don't want anyone to lose their uniqueness when they come into medical school. Mm. Um, we don't want them to assimilate into the mold of medical student or stereotype or, you know, majority minority as you were saying but but we want people to be unique then it's the uniqueness that brings the knowledge and the, and the the education and the value to the learning environment I mean f for me as well because everything I know I've learned from my students but you know it, it it's and then taking that knowledge and being able to impart it with senior staff and just trying to sort of shift it a little bit. So I don't ever want students to lose their uniqueness. Um, but how that's seen, heard, valued in the faculty is challenging. And I think, again, it's about our responsibility to create an environment where it is allowed to sit very uh, I want to say comfortably, I can't think of the right word particularly, but I, I just want it, you know, to, to be able to, uh, for a place where people can come and just comfortably sit and authentically be themselves and that everyone is seen and everyone is heard and listened to. So, But that's, that's a challenge because we're all fixed on, in medicine, it, it, it's very much about... Um, it's competitive, it's based around success and excellence and the traditional views of what success and excellence mean. They mean very different things to me when I think about the success of my students. I don't think about them being in the top 10% of the year or having won academic prizes. Not that that isn't success in its own way, but that's just one aspect of success. There are so many other um, aspects of success. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's seeing those. Mm. I, I, I'm going to bring Star Trek into this. <laughs> <laughs> you know the Borg? I, if mm. any Trekkies out there, the Borg is a, is a group of collective, yeah? And you assimilate. Mm. In, in, so you lose your identity, right? I've always felt, and I, and I have kids also, and, and, and family members, that when we go to certain countries, so, for example, I've lived in Netherlands and in UK, I did feel I had to assimilate mm. and lose that identity, some of that things. I don't want to show it, including how I speak. Even now, I'm so conscious of how I speak, because I have a Malaysian accent, and here and now again, I will go la, and, you know, <laughs> I will add all these adjectives to it, and... Uh, words and expressions, I was really ashamed of it, you know, because I thought that made me look less educated, made me look less professional. 
You know, because you have to assimilate. And he used to, I used to hear George Alagaya speak on BBC. And I was like, oh God, if I could only speak with such <laughs> diction, you know, such clarity. But over time, people gave me encouragement. I gained that confidence. I'm not saying that it's easy. But I, at least for me, just being myself and continue being myself and showing it through my work and my output, it worked. But... I would say, don't assimilate. Don't. don't. Resist. It's not futile. Resistance is not futile. Resist as much as you can. Maintain that identity because not only you become richer from that, your community becomes richer. Mm. Yeah. And I think I, I just want to add from my experience, uh, so I think my experience of the queer community is particularly that actually racism is incredibly prevalent, if, if not a lot of other isms, and actually... I think it's the job for those of us that have privilege within, from other parts of our intersecting identities, but within that community to be allies. And I think it comes back to that allyship yeah. and to actually then help raise those voices um, because I'm conscious that I carry an awful lot of privilege within that community, but therefore that privilege comes with responsibility. And I think mm. coming back to the idea of not just always putting that responsibility back on the person that comes from so many different identities to have mm. to constantly raise that. Um, I'm conscious of time, so I wonder if we should maybe... Uh, one more question maybe from the floor. Has anyone got a question yet? Um, thank you, and thank you for some really insightful um, talks. I just wanted to bring back to research briefly, if that's okay. I think... Um, reflecting on all of our social identities and our experiences is so important and reflexivity in all our research but I just wondered what your um, thoughts are going forward particularly thinking about intersectionality theory and applying that as there priorities that you see as sort of next steps in that work maybe I can start so I'm just speaking now as so I have a role as a deputy editor in a journal one of the things that I look for, uh, and reviewers, when we have that discussion, is the reflexivity and how that intersectionality is being uh, discussed and acknowledged and, you know, being forward with it because that changes the lens, right? So there is a focus in scholarship, at least when we're looking at papers that are being published, we want to look at that. That's being valued. So that means in study design, right, it has to come from that. The fool you have in your group, the groups that you are uh, 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 working with or, you know, you've got to acknowledge that and bring that into the conversation. And it's not about conforming. Eh? I think if, if that comes and raises more questions of how we did things in the past, that should also come into scholarship and research. Yeah, yeah I think um, there's, a, there's a great paper that um, Tasha Wyatt and colleagues, and, and Tasha Wyatt is a real um, leader in this area in med-ed research. Um, she's written a fantastic paper on, on intersectionality and really kind of um, emphasizing that it, it really needs to um, kind of come in at the start of research. And I've experienced this, you know, in, in my doctoral work, um, because of the research I had done historically in disability in medicine, it was quite rare for students of color to come forward to participate in the research. And in my research actually, maybe because of the institutions I was studying, um, I had a lot of students of color come forward. And it highlighted for me how I hadn't prepared for that. And then, you know, the methodology I was using, it was like, okay, how am I going to fold this in? So I think as a researcher, um, both tuning into the data you're getting, but also the data you're not getting is something to think about, um, to not assume that students of color don't exist in the space that you're, you're working in, um, thinking about, you know, your sampling strategy, um, but then I also was thinking about what you were talking about with journal editing. Um, I'm on the editorial board at TLM, Teaching and Learning in Medicine. Um, and I want to shout out Anna Ciancolo, who's doing incredible work at that journal, really genuinely in structural ways, looking at how that journal operates and really um, shifting kind of review processes and um, 
you know, the, the intern program and all these ways that um, she's really leading that journal to, to reshape how it thinks about all the challenges yeah. that we've been talking about. And one of the things that we're adding to the, I hope I'm not speaking out of turn, but we're adding to our review process is for really encouraging reviewers, not just authors, yeah. to think about reflexivity. So yes. if you're reviewing a paper, um, and it comes back to something you said in your talk about the kinds of comments that you frequently get or folks from yeah. the Global South frequently get about their papers, um, you know, the comments on the English language, comments on is this a topic that is important to everyone else in the world, quote unquote. Um, I'm really asking reviewers to yeah. to check themselves maybe <laughs> to, to what, where am I coming from? How am I looking at this? And why does that matter in how I'm reading this paper? And how does that also shape the knowledge in our field and, and make it smaller if we, if we yeah. look at work in certain ways? Yeah, I, I, I'm not a, a researcher by trade and a teacher by trade. Um, but what, what you've just said, I think, that that checking process is really crucial, and and I know I'm not slightly I'm deviating from your question here slightly, but this is something we would, we're going to bring into our admissions and selection mm. training, mm. is that at the beginning of each time that we are selecting our students is to say what is my position, what am I looking for, what lens am I looking mm, through, yeah. etc. And so, um, rather than doing a sort of standard. Um, EDI training package several months before they interview is to bring in some just checks and balances in the own thought process before before you do that. But on the research for us within as, as an educational context, I think the other thing that we're doing is bringing students in mm -hmm. as experts that, that want to come in and looking at our sort of small programs of evaluation that we're, we're running um, at the moment, looking at the attainment awarding gap. So it's crucial that we have their perspectives and that they are acknowledged for that perspectives in order for us to do a, a, a thorough and meaningful evaluation. Thank you. So my final question then, just to wrap things up is, if we were to come back together in five years time, where do you hope we will be on this? Me. Okay, <laughs> First thing is, I hope we are not in Birmingham. <laughs> now, no, the reason is, the reason is, I hope we are somewhere else in the world, having the same conversation with an even more diverse group. I think that's important. And hopefully we can do it in a sustainable manner. I, I, you know, because I know with the issues with flying and our carbon footprint, that's real. And we got to acknowledge that. Mm. But jokes aside, the community needs to grow and be more diverse because that is a reflection of the society. Mm. Where sh we should be in five years' time in terms of scholarship research is actually almost, I think, because it's still evolving, huh? It's still evolving. I do think this, this, this whole discussion is evolving. It's perhaps discussing more literature and evidence because there is a big uh, paucity in that and discussing and sharing evidence that it works mm. because I think there are a lot of detractors out there who do not think these issues are real, just, you know, keep calm and carry on or something like that mm. and they see us as not being calm. <laughs> so... We need to bring more evidence. So in five years, more evidence. Evidence, it works. And also planning for the next steps. So, yeah. I think um, in an ideal five years' time, um, in the words of one of my colleagues from the Widening Participation um, Director at the university, is, is he hopes he's out of a job. Mm. Because um, it, what will be really nice yeah. is not to need widening participation yeah. programs to medicine. In five years' time, I don't think that's ever going to happen um, because we've got so many applicants, we've got a system that's built on what we think doctors should be and should look like, and, and it's taking, well, it's a generation already, you know, with 20 years of, of, of trying to break that down, and we're still working on it. But no, ideally, it would be really nice not to have to have six-year programmes <laughs> and to have programmes that accommodate all students from all backgrounds and that can bring the potential out but yes, realistically, hopefully, 
hopefully that, that sort of 5% number I showed of the gateway programs, we see, you know, it would be nice to see a much larger um, proportion of our medical students yeah. coming from those backgrounds. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I, I think um, I used to say I hope I don't need to do this research anymore. Um, I think that's um, kind of the ideal world is we don't, we don't need to be talking about equity, diversity, inclusion, and justice because we're living it. It's already um, deeply embedded. But I think, um, you know, I think about the horizon line. Um, we're always looking, you know, working towards a horizon, which means it's always moving. Mm -hmm. There's always going to be new things that we're recognizing that we weren't talking about. So um, I hope we're in a place where we can see um, more things to, to be working towards. I agree that idea of having evidence um, of transformation, the idea of um, having schools where um, learners thrive in their difference, um, I think would be amazing. <laughs> um, and I think, um, yeah, really having solid examples of anti-ableist, anti-racist, anti-classist, anti-nationalist programs um, that we can look to as, as examples and then also critique those and, mm -hmm. and keep working. Yep. Yep. Thank you. Um, and I think that brings the session to an end on a really nice, hopefully positive overall um, way forward. I just want to say a massive thank you to our three panellists. So if we can just give them a round of applause. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Well, wasn't that just an amazing discussion? Um, just so many powerful messages really that came out of that um and i think it's gonna take me quite a long time to really think about and process some of that i what did what did you guys think i'm really glad that we've got that recorded because i have to say there's like you it's there's so much to take away from it um and i think i'll listen to that episode many times and still hear something new each time which is really really nice to to have um yeah, Sean, what did you think? I mean, I think it's a fantastic panel that we had as well. They've all come from such different backgrounds, not just in terms of geography, but in terms of what they do in terms of research, clinical work, et cetera. And just to hear some of their answers, but with very similar themes across that spectrum, I thought was so interesting. Um, minus the announcement we had at the very beginning, which will be edited. <laughs> <up>. <laughs> yeah, I don't think, I, I think, at least, at least everyone knows genuinely it was live recorded on stage. Yeah. <laughs> at the time, where was it going to ever end? I'm sure it will have been shortened in the edited version, but um, I'm sure you will catch a glimpse of that. Um, yeah, I just, I, if you could take home, just I guess to summarise really, what would your one take home message be? I think for me, it would be, about looking towards the voices of people who perhaps we're not hearing so loud and be active in creating spaces to be able to hear those voices. I think the one for me is that when people talk about intersectionality, especially with all these people who come from different directions, it can be quite overwhelming initially. There's quite a lot of voices out there and it's quite difficult to begin thinking about it as a topic, but actually just from what I've heard and from the references people have talked about, there's a lot of literature out there already. So I think there is a lot of information out there for people to educate themselves um, about this topic. And I think that's my biggest learning point is just, I can just go out and find the information. I think, I think you're so right there, both of you. I think they're both really important points. And, and I think for me, the one thing that I've reminded myself is that we all have a role in this as well. And we all have intersectional identities. We all sit in groups, but within those groups, there are intersectional identities and where we carry power within those groups. It's really important that we use that um, to then try and help those voices that aren't being heard, have, have the opportunity to be heard and to address those issues. But 
sort of touching then on what you said Sean I guess not putting all the emphasis on them and making sure that we do do our own work and understanding and reading around the edges because I think that's so important and and if we don't do that um then then we're part of the problem really absolutely I agree with you yeah just such a fantastic uh panel that we've been able to listen to and before we head off for our kind of next sessions for this morning, um, I just want to put a cheeky little plug in there, um, given this is the TASME podcast, that TASME, if you're listening in August 2023, um, we'll be recruiting for our new committee. So we've got a number of different roles um, available to be part of, um, things, communication, events team, um, networks team, um, and probably podcast team as well, if you're interested. Um, so um, yeah, we'll keep an eye out on Twitter um, and on kind of uh, social media and things and we'll be releasing a bit more information about that soon thanks Cleo and definitely something that I would with no bias at all recommend that you, you definitely get involved in okay no, that's brilliant thank you both for um just coming and sharing your reflections there I think that's really um helpful and um enjoy the rest of the conference and I'll I'm sure I'll see you around soon Rob thank you so much Cleo take care yeah th- thanks very much Sean thanks Rob So I just wanted to end by saying a massive thank you again to our fantastic panel. Dr Neera Jane, Senior Lecturer at the Centre for Medical and Health Sciences Education at the University of Auckland, Professor Sally Curtis, Deputy Head of School Education and Admissions Tutor at the University of Southampton Medical School, Professor Vishnu Devi V. Nadaraja, who is currently the Deputy Vice-Chancellor for Institutional Development and International and Professor of Human Biology at the International Medical University. I honestly don't think we'd have had such a rich discussion without all three of their contributions. And this episode has really caused me to think a lot. I also want to say a big thank you to the audience for their questions during the session, which really tested our panel. If you've enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. You can find out more about TASME, ASME and our many other groups at asme.org.uk and make sure you follow us on Twitter at TASME underscore UK. I want to say a massive thank you not only to the podcast team and the wider TASME committee, but everyone at ASME who helped pull together this special episode, including Jenny, Helen and Gillian in the ASME office, Professor Gabrielle Finn, ASME's Director of Events, and the team at Vision Events who recorded this episode for us. Finally, as always, thank you to Amlunya for our theme music. Thank you for listening to TASME Time. We look forward to seeing you again soon.